Greetings. This is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will take a look at Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 21, through chapter 20, ending at verse 5. In our last teaching, Paul was in Ephesus, where he had been enjoying a successful ministry for about three years. In fact, uh, he'd even experienced unusual miracles, where even the work garments that he wore were taken uh, to those who were diseased or demon-possessed, and they were healed and delivered from their afflictions. This was a very unusual occurrence, but God granted this to confirm Paul as a servant of the true and living God and verify that his message was truth. As a result, a great many people came to faith in Jesus Christ. As evidence of their newfound faith and transformed lives, they gathered up all their books and idols and stuff associated with their previous idolatrous and occultic practices, and bringing them to city center, they cast these things into a giant bonfire, and of course, these things were completely destroyed. But Paul had come to the conclusion that his time in Ephesus needed to draw to a close. As he needed to return back to Jerusalem, he, he also had a desire to visit Rome, which he will. However, it will happen in a way that he did not anticipate. And we'll explore this uh, further in future lessons. Well, this is where we pick up the narrative. So turn now in your Bible to Acts chapter 19, and I will begin reading with verse 21 through 28. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion among the way, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has been persuading and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificent destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. In preparation for his departure, we read that Paul sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of him into Macedonia to get things prepared for his soon arrival. In the meantime, Paul remained behind to wrap up a few things, and we don't know how long he remained there, but it probably wasn't very long. However, it, it was at this time that a great commotion was stirred up, and the motivation for this 
was greed and power. How consistent the enemy is. As one commentator observes, the gospel was pretty much ignored in Ephesus until it began to affect the cash flow of the pagan merchants. Then things got wild. This is always the case. There is a ripple effect as the message of Christ is preached, hearts are touched, and attitudes are changed. Eventually, the gospel results in lifestyle changes. Followers of Christ no longer find within themselves a desire for worldly things. And if enough people turn to Christ, the repercussions can be felt all across a society. As we learned in our last session, many people had become followers of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. A direct result of that was that they were no longer buying their idols, amulets, icons, etc., to Diana. In other translations, they call her Artemis, the patron goddess of Ephesus. To help us understand what significance this idol played in the city of Ephesus, we will draw from uh, what we read in the Life Application Bible Commentary. It reads this way. Diana, or Artemis, was a goddess of fertility. She was represented by a carved female figure with many breasts. A large statue of Artemis, or, or Diana, was in the great temple of Ephesus. That temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Supported by 126 pillars, each six stories tall, the edifice was about four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. The festival of Artemis involved wild orgies and carousing. Obviously, the religious and commercial life of Ephesus reflected the city's worship of this pagan deity. Well, to this information, Dr. H.A. Ironside adds this interesting observation. It is said, you know, that the image of Diana, which was enshrined in the temple and accounted one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, had fallen down from heaven. Actually, what was enshrined in the temple was a great meteor, meteorite, which was shaped very roughly after the figure of a woman. The people said, this is an image of the goddess Diana, and she sent it down from heaven that it might be worshipped and that our city might become the center of her cult. On the site of a marsh outside of the city, they built a gorgeous temple in which was enshrined this black meteorite, and the people thronged there by the thousands to worship Diana. And those who desired to carry back to their homes replicas of the image purchased these silver shrines that they might worship and adore them in their own cities. So, for Demetrius and the members of his guild, uh, who made a huge profit after cre creating these, these things, well, this was a financial issue, clearly. And they had successfully stirred up the people to believe that this was an attack on their patron goddess. And that is why for two hours, 
The crowd shouted over and over again, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Archaeologists tell us where they were standing in that moment was a place where more than 25,000 people could gather. This was a situation that drew the attention of all those who were in authority in the city, and it was threatening to be a very dangerous situation. Well, let us continue with our reading. Beginning now with verse 29, we read this. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go in to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What is very interesting here is that verse 29 tells us that the entire city of Ephesus was filled with confusion. This actually is a common pattern for mob rule. A few people strip others with lies and half-truths, and as they go along shouting and gesturing, maybe even weeping, Others are swept along with the excitement of the moment, the emotions, believing the lies, failing to question what is being said and what is being done. It is pure emotion that eventually drives the crowd. This is the same type of situation that our Lord faced on the night that he was arrested. You, are, you will remember that just a few days earlier, the people had been welcoming him into the city of Jerusalem with loud cries of, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then 
because of the influence and lies and half-truths of some, the crowd rose up against him. Let me read this now so that we can fully appreciate the dynamic of what took place. So I'm reading out of Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 6. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one man named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him, Pilate, to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate asked and said to them, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus, after he'd been scourged, to be crucified. William Wearsby adds this interesting insight, which we can apply to Jesus' situation or to Paul's. He writes this, Benjamin Franklin said that a mob was, quote, a monster with heads enough, but no brains, end quotes. How sad it is when people permit themselves to be led by a few selfish leaders who know the art of manipulation. Demetrius made use of the two things the Ephesians loved the most, the honor of their city and the greatness of their goddess and her temple. Apparently, the crowd of people, along with Demetrius and his companions, had tried to find Paul, but were unsuccessful. So they grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus instead. The Bible says that these two men were Macedonians. In fact, we know that Aristarchus grew up in Thessalonica. And they were also companions of Paul. I find it a little bit amusing that Luke wrote in verse 32, the assembly was confused and most of them did not know what they had why what they had come together yes most of the crowd in the open air theater did not know why they were shouting and rioting this is a true picture of the phenomenon known as mob mentality people suspend their better judgment and stop thinking logically They fall in with the group and feed off of a collective sense of power or rage. Such emotions, while making individuals feel wonderfully alive, are capable of sparking great destruction. It is for a good reason that Moses warned the children of Israel in Exodus 23.2, You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Let me encourage you, dear friend, that 
When your feelings are running high, take a step back and examine your own heart. Engage your mind and determine to obey God. Well, while all of this chaos was going on, someone grabbed Alexander. And this was because, once again, the Jews had pointed out to them that he was one of the followers of the way, meaning a follower of Jesus. Although he tried to speak to the crowd, they would not listen, but just kept on shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. It was at this point that the city clerk stepped up and began to speak to the crowd. This man was the elected head of the city executive, or the chief administrative assistant, annually elected of the magistrates. He had a staff of permanent clerks and was responsible for the paperwork of the city. Therefore, not only was he a, a very important man, but His position required him to try to restore order and law to the city. If he failed to do that, Rome would hear about the trouble brewing in this great city and Caesar would take away their special privileges and freedoms that they had enjoyed for so long. Therefore, this man was very wise in what he said to the crowd. In his speech, he made four key points. First, he reminded them that they did not need to worry about the reputation of Diana as the entire world was aware of her greatness. Second, the two men before them, Gaius and Aristarchus, weren't guilty of the charges against them, which were, number one, being sacrilege, robbing the temple, nor, uh, number two, of blasphemy against the goddess. In other words, They were innocent. Third, the ones who originally brought the charges and stirred up the city were familiar with proper legal procedures, and they should have gone through the proper channels in order to deal with this perceived threat to their society. And finally, he reminded them that they were in danger of being reported to Rome and charged with civil disobedience. The people listened to him, and he sent the people home. And with this, another crisis was averted. Now, let's read our last section. This would be chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in 
five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. This situation was what prompted Paul to leave Ephesus and begin his travel back to Jerusalem. He actually had a twofold purpose for this journey. One is that he wanted to encourage the brethren in the various churches that he had started. And this is exactly what he did. Paul was a man for whom the care of the churches was one of his greatest joys, as well as his heaviest burden. His heart in this is revealed in 2 Thessalonians 11, verses 23 through 28. When he was defending his actions as an apostle of Jesus Christ and as a minister to the brethren sometime later. And so he wrote this. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which comes upon me daily. My deep concern is for all the churches. The other reason for this journey is that he was carrying with him the offering the churches had given him for the persecuted church in Jerusalem. This was much needed help, and he was anxious to get this delivered to them. But part of that gift will be those who will travel with him as representatives of the churches. From Galatia, we have Gaius and Timothy. From Asia, there's Tychicus and Trophimus. And from Macedonia, Sopater, Aristarchus, and Sagundus. Along with them, you will notice that Luke will join the group in Troas and travel with them back to Jerusalem. We know this by the use of the word we in verse 6. So from Ephesus, Paul journeyed to Macedonia, which would include Corinth. He actually writes a little about this time in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians, when he would stay in Corinth for three months. Presumably, this was during winter, and therefore he stayed until the weather permitted and travel once again. It was during this time in Corinth that Paul sat down and wrote the letter to the church in Rome. The book of Romans has been described as a theological essay on the meaning of faith and salvation and explanation of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in Christ and a list of practical guidelines for the church. It is a foundational book for study and application, deep in theological truth, rich in grace and love.
In regards to the Book of Romans, the Life Application Bible Commentary makes the following observation. A reading of the first few verses of Romans, especially Romans 1.13, relates Paul's ardent desire to visit Rome and the sovereign hand of God that had prevented him from getting there up to this point. The combination of these two factors, Paul's impassioned desire to go to Rome and God's sovereign no, resulted in his sitting down to write the letter to the Romans, the undisputed Magna Carta of the Christian faith. Perhaps there are some no's in our lives that God is planning to use greatly if we would just faithfully do what lies directly ahead of us instead of worrying about why we didn't get our way. Well, true to form, after about three months, the Jews once again rose up against Paul, which prompted him to continue his journey back to Jerusalem. Once again, we, we can read about what he was experiencing in Second Corinthians, this time in chapter 7 beginning with verse 5. For indeed, when you came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul and the group traveled to Troas, where he would remain for a brief period of time. And we will address what took place in our next teaching, but for now, let me close with this rich passage of encouragement for those who, like Paul, are facing opposition to the message of Jesus and resistance to your ministry of love and grace. Let me say, if it is not your experience now, it probably will soon be. So let me read just a few verses from the book of Second Timothy, chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and, and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Yes, Lord, you have called us to a great and glorious task. But at times it seems bigger than we are. But you are mighty and you are greater. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to empower us. Thank you for your word of truth upon our lips. So that even if they should dispute with us, they cannot dispute with your word. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen our resolve to be faithful. To indeed be watchful in all things. To faithfully endure the afflictions that come our way to do the work of the evangelist and to fulfill the task that you have called us to do, to be your witnesses, to be a vessel of your love, of your truth, of your grace, to proclaim your glory. We ask, O oh God, make us your servants yet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you are finding these messages helpful and encouraging, or, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, please feel free to email me at BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. That's all one word, BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. So until next time, my friend, be faithful in service with love and patience and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he who promised is faithful. And the promise of God is this, that he who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God bless you, my friend. <music>